Jack. Levi. Are we the crazy ones? Hey everyone. Welcome to Are We The Crazy Ones, the podcast that explores fringe perspectives in literature and on the internet. I'm Levi, and in this episode, Jack and I cover Food of the Gods by Terence McKenna. A bit of admin first. Our discussions are becoming more free-flowing as we become more comfortable recording the podcast. So, at times, we may gloss over important details during our conversation. As such, we are trialling a new format. We are adding a short intro outlining some of the key points of the work and the background of the author. I do recommend you listen to the intro because it will give you more context, but if you want to jump straight into the conversation, please skip to about the eight-minute mark. Now, on to our text for today. A folk hero amongst psychedelic explorers around the world, Terence McKenna is famous not only for taking recklessly high doses of magic mushrooms, but as one of the leading public thinkers in the psychedelic revolution. Mr. McKenna risked personal harm and political persecution during the height of the conservative backlash to the hippie counterculture of the 1960s. He was an outspoken critic of the drug war and advocated for the healthy use of psychoactive drugs in society, bravely keeping alight the psychedelic candle until his death in the year 2000 at the age of just 53. Mr. McKenna studied ecology at the University of California, Berkeley, in the 1960s and 70s. He travelled extensively throughout his career and was particularly impacted by the time he spent with shamans in tribal societies of the Amazon. Arguably, his writings of his psychedelic jungle adventures helped kickstart the modern interest in psychedelic tourism in South America. McKenna was also heavily influenced by various esoteric passions, including pre-Buddhist Tibetan religion, ancient Chinese numerology, and modern psychoanalysis. His unique mixture of interests is reflected in his diverse and somewhat eccentric bibliography. In this episode, we read his most influential book, Food of the Gods, The Search for the Original Tree of Knowledge. In this watershed book on psychonautic literature, McKenna proposes stoned ape theory, a theoretical explanation of the origin of modern humans. He argues that our sophisticated cognitive functions, including complex social systems, technology, and language, emerged as a direct consequence of our symbiotic relationship with psychedelic mushrooms over the many millennia of biological and cultural evolution. Perhaps more controversial than the explanations of human evolution are Mr. McKenna's moral, political, and social agenda, what he calls the archaic revival. To begin with, McKenna identifies some of the world's most challenging dangers, including ecological catastrophe, overpopulation, and the threat of nuclear war. He argues that all these dangers are the result of what he calls dominator culture, a cultural archetype that normalises the destruction of the environment, violence, dogmatic monotheism, patriarchy, and social domination. Mr. McKenna proposes that our global society is in dire need of large-scale reform based on the values of pre-agricultural shamanistic societies. These so-called partnership cultures are antithetical to dominator cultures in that they value an elevation of the feminine and a matriarchal spirituality, a symbiotic relationship with nature, egalitarianism, orgiastic sexual liberation, and a deep connection with the mystical and the divine. Of course, such a sick civilization as ours that is in desperate need of such radical transformation needs potent medicine. Dr. McKenna prescribes the revival of psychedelic plant experiences as a necessary course of treatment. Taking Mr. McKenna's lead, we might hazard a guess that the archetypes of the dominator culture and the partnership culture run very deep indeed. This ancient clash of cultural archetypes points not merely to a societal conflict between the various factions of our earliest ancestors, but points to something more fundamental and more biological. A keen analysis such as Mr. McKenna's reveals that this clash of cultures is still echoing down the ages in the society we have inherited from our forebears. In fact, the story of this conflict is imprinted in our very DNA 
and is therefore in the characteristic behaviours that make us uniquely human. Obviously, psychoactive drugs in use within a particular society can affect the minds and perspectives of the people taking them, people who then of course go on to participate in the rest of the culture. It is here that we find a potential mechanism for Mr McKenna's argument. 1. Human minds create culture. 2. Psychoactive drugs have a profound impact on our minds. 3. Our culture forms a crucial element of our environment. 4. Combining 1, 2 and 3, psychoactive drugs are capable of profoundly impacting our cultural environment and so could have played an important role in our biological and sociological evolutionary story. But 5. In the modern West, we live in a global dominator culture, which has been shaped by the malicious use of drugs, of social control and moral degeneracy, such as alcohol, that are authorised by, complement and contribute to dominator values. Blinded by the internal logic of our own cultural setting, we have completely overlooked the role of our relationship with drugs in general, and all but annihilated our once generative relationship with psychedelics. This seems to be the crux of his argument. The mushroom forms a symbiotic relationship with humans not only through the psychological and physical changes whilst under the influence, the mushroom is also symbiotic with human society writ large by shifting our cultural landscape and affecting genetic evolution over the course of many generations. If I may take some liberty, we could draw a loose parallel to how humans have changed dogs over the course of our long interspecies friendship. The shift from wolf to domesticated dog under the guidance of humans is analogous to the shift from primate to modern human under the guidance of the mushrooms. Two species have lived together so intimately over such vast spans of time that one has quite literally changed the life and the livelihood of the other. McKenna's ideas have been criticised as pseudoscientific, and Jack and I pull no punches in our criticisms or jokes about many parts of the book. However, there are perspectives that are potentially valuable, regardless of the scientific validity of the work. Looking at our society from the lens of our past, McKenna's stoned ape theory tells us that the drugs our society chose to allow or disallow in prior generations has had a profound impact on present-day moral and institutional realities that affect people all over the globe. This impact can be seen not merely in the lack of access to potentially useful and therapeutic drugs like many of the plant-based psychedelics, but it can also be seen in the many other parts of our global society's war on drugs, from the tragedy of drug-funded organised crime in Central America to the unjust incarceration of non-violent drug users across the world. On the other hand, looking at our society from the lens of our potential futures, his subversively hopeful idea of the archaic revival would point us to the conclusion that the recent trends of progressive drug policy reforms in the West will have equally far-reaching and profound impacts on the ethical and social realities of our children and for many generations to come. McKenna's ideas might be on the fringe. However, his life work, his legacy, and many of his views are being vindicated by the recent groundbreaking research on the beneficial effects of psychedelics. McKenna's story, like many stories of people who venture into the strange and wonderful world of psychedelics, teaches us that sometimes the fringe may contain important wisdom that the rest of us desperately need to hear, but we cannot hear, because we are too normal, perhaps too sober, and we cannot hear the message until the damage is already done. Taking a leaf out of Lex Friedman's book, I'm going to paraphrase Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The line separating good and evil, separating partnership and dominator, passes right through each one of us, through every human heart and through all human hearts. Perhaps deep in the darkness of our primeval past, it was our ancient psychedelic plant friends that helped us see clearly this line between good and evil. Now in the early 2020s, living in the shadow of the pandemic and the wake of possible climate catastrophe, 
Perhaps it is our dearest and oldest of friends, the magic mushroom, that can help us to see that line running through each of our hearts clearly once more. And now, comrades, Jack and I read Food of the Gods by Terence McKenna. Before reading Food of the Gods, I don't I don't remember when I first came across Terence McKenna. Maybe because the probably the first encounters with him that I've had are when we listen to to recordings of him talking about taking magic mushrooms when we were less than sober. Or maybe more than <laughs> when, sober. When we were it's... when we were on magic mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Or something. Probably 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 something. <laughs> or more yeah, than so sober, within, yes. within McKenna's paradigm, when we were far more than sober, when we were suffering from an excess of reality rather than too little, it, that's when I first encountered Terence. Yes, re- reality was uh, entering our brains at high velocity. <laughs> when so, did you first come across him? That's a really bloody good question. You don't remember? This is something along the lines of it must have been in 2017 or 2018 when I really started getting into psychedelics <laughs> and undoubtedly somehow ended up finding out about Terrence McKenna as, as one does if you just type in psychedelics into, into YouTube. At some point, you'll come across a Terence McKenna video. Plus, also Rogan talks about Terence McKenna, and he's had uh, he's had Terence McKenna's brother on, Dennis McKenna, who is still in the oh, that's right, in the in the uh, psychedelic revival movement, I suppose, for lack of a better word. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a whole yeah, thing. Well, for you lucky listeners, we're going to unpack the the seeds of the psychedelic revival movement today. The food of the gods. Seeds or spores, if we're discussing mushrooms. Spores. More the spores of the revival. spores. Like nice uh, kind of blue spores. Nice purpley blue spores. Yeah. That'd be good. So Terence McKenna wrote this book. By, by the standards of our podcast, at least, in quite a lucid way in a well-structured way. Again, within the paradigm of Are We The Crazy Ones? So we're going to more or less follow his structure with some discursions. Yeah. With probably probably quite a few of those, but we'll mostly follow his structure. And it's structured somewhat like... Dante's (laughs) Divine Comedy. Yeah, the... um, it's a it's a saga about humanity's one-time paradise, losing that paradise, descending to hell, and then regaining it, or a proposition for how to regain it for the future. It ends on quite an optimistic note. And and naturally the paradise was littered with psychedelic mushrooms. Oh it absolutely was food was of predicated the on enjoying the food of the gods and if you have not guessed yet, that that food is psychedelic mushrooms. All right. So, and the first part of the book is titled Paradise. And it's basically... <laughs> it's uh, paradise. It's a it's, psychedelic it's, African savanna paradise. <laughs> it's a quote-unquote scientific exploration of... Uh, 
an explanation of human evolution. Basically, McKenna proposes uh, the jump from sort of proto-hominid to humans, especially sort of modern humans with our cognitive capacities for like universal language and a, a, a very sophisticated sort of extended phenotype, behavioral phenotype and complex societies and all that sort of stuff. Um, that leap from sort of, you know, early humans or our sort of ape ancestors to modern humans was catalyzed, I suppose, or perhaps even caused directly by a sort of what, what McKenna refers to as a quasi symbiotic relationship with mm-hmm. uh, psychedelic plants in particular psilocybin containing mushrooms yeah is uh is that a is that a reasonable high level entry point that's a that's a very reasonable entry point i would also like to say as a preface to the the small number of people listening the even smaller <laughs> number watching mckenna constantly talks about plant intelligence and includes within that magic mushrooms. Both Levi and I are aware that mushrooms are not plants. They're fungi. So, so if anyone any s- were wanting to, for any to write in or make there. a snarky comment, we, we are aware of this. We're just remaining true to the source material in which mushrooms are plants. See, see McKenna was a botanist he, 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 uh, or an ecologist by training. He actually trained at Berkeley and he beside... I think was in uh, eth- ethnology. Eth is that the correct word? As in like entheogens. A- anyways, um, basically like plants and stuff and <laughs> science. And and he knows the difference between plants and like fungi and mushrooms and stuff. But I think he's just using it as a catch-all term for just like organic matter. Yeah, yeah. plants and mushrooms. Yeah, for the. Uh... The planetary vegetable matrix. <laughs> yeah. So. So before. So go on. Yeah. Before we even talk about human evolution or hominid evolution, thanks to eating magic mushrooms, how about we talk about what habits are, habits and addictions? Because this is this is the foundation of most of the book, or this this concept underlies much of the book, the idea yep. of habits and addictions. And he, really early on in the section called an agonizing reappraisal, he sets out <laughs> the spectrum of, of, of potential states between habits and addictions. So he, he says that a habit is a settled tendency or practice and habits are neither good nor bad. They're, they're neutral. They're just what, what people or animals more generally do. But once, once pursuit of a habit crosses a, a largely culturally defined barrier, once you pursue it to a greater extent than the culture within which you're situated deems acceptable or normal, that becomes an obsession. And yeah. it's viewed dimly because it's seen as a reduction in your free will. If that continues even further, it becomes an addiction. 
Uh, there's a nice quote where he kind of sums it up. Uh, habit, obsession, addiction. These words are signposts along a path of ever-decreasing free will. Denial of the power yeah. of free will is implicit in the notion of addiction, and in our culture, addictions are viewed seriously, especially exotic or unfamiliar addictions. Yeah. So, just to give the guy credit, like, he's an okay writer. Compared to, compared I to, like how he writes. Compared to, to, compared to Varg, he is like... Oh, man. <laughs> he is yeah. an amazing, incredible writer. Uh, mm-hmm. So, it's fine. It, it's not the worst thing to read. So, you'll see his quotes are understandable. He actually knows how to write. Yeah. <laughs> he... Yeah, he... he he does write fairly well. He really likes the word Adambrite and just keeps keeps using it, which is a bit distracting. Yeah, he was definitely one of those kids in year twelve in year twelve who like picked a couple of key words to use on their assignment and was like, I'm on their like English English essays. Like yeah. I know these words will make me sound smarter than I actually am. So I'm just gonna keep on hitting those words. Mellifluous. Yeah, it sounds like me. <laughs> a dumbrate cornucopia <laughs> cornucopia a pharmacological cornucopia but the why I, why I wanted to bring up habits obsessions addictions is because those feed into his definition of a drug and he defines drug super broadly and only defines it right at the end of the book because he'll define things like tv and sugar as drugs and initially in my notes, I was scribbling all over them saying, no, nah, that's just not a drug. <laughs> but he, he, he defines a drug very late. And his definition is consistent through the book. But So what's his definition, Jack? But only makes sense once, once you know it. So he says that a drug is something that causes unexamined, obsessive and habitual behavior. So super broad definition. Yeah, but you should have at least tacked in like an exogenous stimuli to that, at least. Because, yeah, I mean, I guess you could become obsessed with some thought inside your own mind, <laughs> and it would yeah. qualify as a drug under that. I mean, you could say under that definition, like an ideology is a drug, but I'm, I'm being, yeah, but I, but I, I, th- <laughs> I think he, he does define them almost as drugs. His definition yeah. of drug is really broad, but yeah. it brings up the really interesting question. Under his, or within his framework, are psychedelics drugs? Because I <laughs> say, no, no, no. So you, you do a hit of DMT. You don't want to touch that again for a, a long time. Mate, speak for yourself. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking to my, speaking for myself, I don't want to. I don't want to even think about it for a long time afterwards. Uh, it's some not... people are crawling their way like heroin junkies over to their DMT dealer. D- like, DMT give me a hit of, get a, give me a hit of that interdimensional crack. <laughs> <laughs> Launch me off to the machine elves. I need it. I need it. <laughs> oh man, yeah the the bustling underclass of each city, seedy DMT fiends. Willing to Comatose murder for their the next hit of hyperspace. <laughs> so much reality. Anyway. So much reality. I can't get enough. <laughs> I thought it was interesting, at least by his definition of drugs, for me personally, I'm not sure that psychedelics <laughs> would, would qualify as drugs because 
They're not habitual. I do not want to try these things habitually. It is not unexamined behavior. I'm more, more than, than aware of when I'm when I've taken them. Yeah, something like something like what I'm drinking right now. Like this this is a drug by 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 Terry's. Yeah. According to Terry's metric, acid is not. Depends on the dosage. Anyway, that depends on the dosage, yeah. That that was a that was a discursion. <laughs> I promised I promised that we'd go through chronologically with discursions and I've already fulfilled the promise, so <laughs> So human evolution. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So essentially like there's also uh there's not just the uh neurological evolution. Um you know, so essentially humans are this big mystery, right? We're we're the only animal capable of a bunch of different things, like building cities mm-hmm. and creating art and all these sorts of things. And there's the neurological part of it, which is like our brain capacity, fairly large brain, developed prefrontal cortex, yada, 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 all good things. And those will have like biochemical and genetic components to them. But there's also the cultural component of human evolution, which is uh, the way in which uh, the culture of society impacts. Or you could think of like uh, the the culture of a society over a long enough period of time could potentially impact the evolution of the genes in that society and therefore the, the members of that society. So he's kind of positing, mm-hmm. um, he, he breaks down human culture into two broad categories. The first of which is uh, antecedent to chronologically to, to the second. And the first one is uh, like what he would call like the archaic or the the part he calls them partnership cultures, and then the second one, which she calls dominator cultures, and essentially uh, archaic partnership cultures were sort of like the early cultures, human or proto-human cultures, and they were about like living in partnership with one another and the environment um, in various forms. Whereas dominator cultures were like to do with strong hierarchies, particularly uh, patriarchal hierarchies, where people were being dominated, so like class structures, and then the environment or the world was being dominated by by those cultures. Um, so basically, we live now in a dominator culture, Western culture, modern Western culture, and the techno-economic system we live under is kind of a dominator culture. But he's kind of positing in this book, like there's this alternative way of living, these partnership cultures that you see in like indigenous societies or shamanic societies in like Central and South America or wherever. And in fact, we need to kind of like, quote unquote, go back to archaic culture and revive those things. And he called, I think he calls it a neo-archaic or something like that. Yeah, the (laughs) archaic revival. The archaic revival. Is that a rough... And... And, and basically, psychedelic mushrooms like feed into into this distinction insofar as getting getting high on psilocybin will do a bunch of things, including making you more loving of your neighbour, I suppose, and more more connected to nature. Mm-hmm. It will also increase visual acuity and make you horny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, there there is so much to talk about, which is why. Well, that this is what people listen for. They they listen for our highly structured 
I think thoroughly scientific. We've already fulfilled your promise. We can we can we can now discourse as much as we like. Yeah, we we are. Well, what did you think about this idea? Of- we 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 are commensurate as we are commensurately disordered as the things we read. That is to say, highly disordered. So maybe even before human evolution, we can talk about what what society once was. Because McKenna sets yeah. this book out. He tells you what yeah. society used to be and why it was really really good. And then he he sets about his his ultimate goal is how to get back to that point. So he tells you what was great in the past and why the world now is terrible. And then yeah. he talks about how that old Eden, the archaic shamanic paradise, came about in central western or western Africa. Yeah, exactly. Then how we're going to get back there. So Let's let's talk about shamanism even before we promise people human evolution and that will come. Oh, who cares about human evolution, man? Give me some of that shaman shamanism, man. All right. So <laughs> so so like what is what is shamanism? Like from a high level, you can think of it as like okay, in sort of pre-agricultural societies to use mm-hmm. that that sort of classification. Uh such as you know various indigenous cultures around the world there'll be like a medicine person a medicine man somebody responsible for the administration of like medicines and they may also overlap with like the person authorized and responsible for running certain types of ceremonies ritual rituals mm-hmm. um so in the context of like indigenous australia that would be things like administering like okay, doing a psychedelic ceremony um, at the end of an, an initiation ceremony for, like, uh, young men or, like, those sorts of things. And in the the most famous one around the world, would the two most famous of these ceremonies would be, like, the ayahuasca ceremony in central... in the Amazon, in Central mm-hmm. and South America. And the other one would be... Uh, maybe, maybe the other one that people would have heard of would would be the peyote ceremony because it's sort of like American. So that's in Arizona and sort of Mexico, the Native American tribes around there have peyote ceremonies. And the person responsible for delivering those, you could think of as like a medicine person, shaman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in McKenna's telling, some of the most important characteristics of shamans are that they are masters of language. Yeah. They commune with, with some sort of world outside of our own or running in parallel with our own, which is real. It's not... This is, this is not some... This, this is not just an altered sensorium from taking psychedelic compounds. This is communing with a real This place. is real. Maybe more real. Yeah. Yeah. And they are masters of ecstasy. He he takes very seriously this idea that they enter an ecstatic state. However, ecstatic doesn't just mean like uh, just like getting high, right? It's a bit more no, nuanced. It's not than fun. That. No. Yeah, he um. So there, there's a quote from. The, the chapter Shamanism and the Lost Archaic World, where, where he says, 
Consider a shaman who uses plants to converse with an invisible world inhabited by non-human intelligences. That, that sums up a lot of his view of what shamans do. They enter another world most, most consistently, or the, the, the best path to this alternate world is using psychedelic drugs, but it can be reached in other ways, like breathing exercises, meditation, abstinence from sex, fasting mm. for long periods, drumming, and they, they commune with other intelligences to heal people. So the interesting thing about this, though, and the reason why McKenna is important, and I guess I'll make sure that I include this in the opening, is that um, Terence McKenna was actually really impacted by his ex direct experiences with uh, quote-unquote shamanic cultures. Like, for basically, mm. for essentially, kid from like California studies botany at UT Berkeley runs down to Central and South America into the Amazon to take, to take a bunch of, take a bunch of drugs with his, with his brother and his friends. And, um, and with, with, with shamans from, from the indigenous peoples, uh, throughout that, that area. And, uh, he, he basically, arguably he, he was one of the, very early influential, potentially uh, the the most impactful modern person to like uh, in, introduce psychedelics into Western into into the United States in particular, but with the Western world, um, and in particular uh, because of the books that he wrote, like people started going down to Central and South America to like find these mushrooms and find, and find the ayahuasca and all that sort of stuff. And now, you know, it's a, it's a booming industry that employs many, many people or whatever. But yeah, so he, he's writing about this, uh, shamanism stuff quite a long time after he had direct experience, experience with it. And came back, and he actually gives like talks at universities, or he used to give talks at universities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this this shamanism, one of the most important functions that it served was to retain a link to the feminine nature of the earth, or what he calls the planetary vegetable intelligence, or planetary vegetable matrix, which keeps humanity within a partnership paradigm rather than a dominator paradigm. In fact, he calls Stroferia cubensis, which is the, the particular type of magic mushroom that he feels was the, the so-called ur plant, the, the plant the that food. kicked off human evolution. Of the god. He calls it the, <laughs> the umbilicus to the feminine mind of the planet. Yeah, he really views the world through like... A a classical dichotomy of feminine and masculine that you might see talked yeah. about in like sort of Hindu cultures, uh, Hinduism and yogic stuff, or, you know, it's a classic sort of archetypical <laughs> way yeah. of breaking the gender genders down. And he views like dominated cultures as, as like hyper masculine, overly masculine and subjugation of feminine femininity mm -hmm. feminine and women and this uh plant allowing us to connect 
to the feminine part of the earth and our culture is part of the reason why it's so good. On that, Jack, uh, what did you think about... What's really interesting is he, he, he reimagines the Genesis story, the Garden of Eden, uh, in light of this uh, hypothesis of his. So the tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, he reinterprets as... As, as the mushroom <laughs> and falling out of Eden could potentially be like, okay, like our descent from our partnership society. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what, I don't know what to make of that. It's just like, he, he just pulls up like random bits of, he nitpicks bits of like literature or mythology from whether it's, he, he quotes stuff from the Vedas, the Hindu Vedas, mm-hmm. he quotes stuff from the Bible. He quotes stuff from like various other religions um and mythologies to support his his view um and basically trying to make parallels try to draw parallels between his hypothesis of this plant causing this cultural shift and like well here's bits of text or religious stuff Mm -hmm. yeah i found i found that uncompelling (laughs) (laughs) i I feel like yeah he he definitely throughout the book he he plays it being scientific he plays it saying well we're not positive what the garden of eden is we're not positive what caused hominid evolution what caused things like the development of more sophisticated language that you find in modern humans versus say apes or yeah our our evolutionary forebears but then he'll having having provided that that conditionality he'll then go on to discuss his theory as if it is established yeah and he'll yeah, just yeah. he'll dismiss other theories because they conflict with his purported hypotheses that he really takes to be fact yeah he clearly just flat out believes it and he he tries to hedge it in in language that he can have some plausible deniability that he's not just being totally mm. cooked <laughs> yeah but if, say for example when he's talking about cultural evolution he says oh well we have no good explanations for why cultural evolution takes place at such a rapid pace and you think oh but i mean we kind of do say if you read david deutsch's work yeah so he proposed what i would yeah everybody should read yeah <laughs> i'll be like he he came after mckenna he wrote many of his books so, after terence mckenna you might even but, say he he is in the footsteps of mckenna <laughs> and david <Yeah>, deutsch <laughs> and there's mckenna and there's david deutsch <laughs> yeah. yeah but say say with ideas of mimesis or mimetic evolution we we do have we do have frameworks within which you can describe how cultural evolution works. However, McKenna just goes on to dismiss all of those because he says they don't factor in the essential role of magic mushrooms. <laughs> so he's he's already decided that he's right. They're not but sufficiently But he tries powerful. to couch it in terms of, oh, well, I'm being scientific. I'm leaving open the possibility that I'm wrong. But he... <laughs> 
That's window dressing. He is sure that he's he's correct. He's he knows. Oh man, I you see, I really here's the thing, Jack. I I really liked McKenna before reading this <laughs> 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 because because to me McKenna was this kind of kind of zany guy on YouTube. I could watch while I was high and have some weird thoughts and be like, wow, <laughs> this guy, like, he's got this video and he, he's got a very, everybody should go and watch videos of this guy because he's, he's got, got a, a he's got the perfect voice for someone who voice. loves he is, psychedelics. He looks and sounds like the sort of guy who took a shitload of mushrooms in his life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And he's got these videos on YouTube and people have cut them up. They're amazing when to listen to when you're intoxicated and it's like to me that was enough, <laughs> you know. Like to me that was like this is, <laughs> that's fine. I don't actually need to unpack your perspectives. And mm. now I've I've learned too much. I've I've had the veil lifted from my eyes, and I now actually know what is going on inside McKenna's head. <laughs> oh, then you're not impressed. I um see. Okay, see the problem is that actually quite a lot of the book is actually quite fine it's just like history of like drugs and there's a lot of history which i assume is probably reasonable reasonably well researched there's some pharmacology stuff which is reasonably well written and it's not too bad but then all the stuff around the archaic the neo-archaicism and like the revival of the archaic culture and the dominator partnership culture stuff. I was Mm -hmm. just like, mate, get the fuck off it. Like you don't like, this is just such, such a... I got a real, I don't think he meant to be patronizing, but it felt incredible patronizing patronizing noble (laughs) savage. It's look at these nice, simple people who... So who are in in touch with nature, they intuitively understand the world. It was like when he was talking about the problem of agriculture, how it meant that women who were traditionally so in touch with nature's bounty and understood it at an intuitive level, learned to do things like grow crops <laughs> and and lost lost their innate feminine knowledge of how how to live in in perfect unity with oh, the natural there were world. Oh, so many eye roll moments. Like this guy, this is like the bible of hippie of hippies. This thing, if you're a hippie, if you want to become a hippie or if, if you know, if that's a life goal of yours, um you've got to read this book. This- <laughs> oh, no, no. I don't even reckon it's 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 the bible of being a hippie. It's the bible of Such one person. No, and 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 it's it's the amazing superposition. It's <laughs> How one person can be many people at the same time. Everyone listening will know at least one person whose entire identity is smoking weed. <laughs> like it's it's okay if you smoke weed. That that doesn't make you this person. You become this person when smoking weed is your personality. They're the type of person who will, within five minutes of meeting anyone, tell them all of the benefits of the hemp industry and how good it is, how good a cloth it is, how it cures everything. They will tell you that they're cutting down on their weed. They don't smoke that much, just, you know, three or four times a day. They will, t- they will try to convince you that weed cures everything, that you, know, you can cure cancer, Alzheimer's and schizophrenia at the same time if you just, like, have your edibles each morning. They will... 
point you towards a YouTube channel with 38 subscribers <laughs> where some guy still making videos in Windows Movie Maker will tell you about how the CIA <laughs> are trying to control your mind using coffee and fir trees or something like that. Like, this person should read Food of the Gods. <laughs> this is their book. They don't know it yet. But if you smoke, if you smoke enough weed, if you, if you do it, if you, if you really go hard on the bongs, you will probably actually develop an innate knowledge of Food of the Gods. Anyway, I think you'll you just commune you'll just with McKenna commune with the McKenna. cosmic void. You'll just download, download to your mind his wisdom. You know the the LSD downloads that you get on the the dance floor at, at at pitch or whatever the fuck. Like you'll be visited. Like McKenna will be like Yoda, <laughs> Yoda and Obi Wan. <laughs> It'll be little Rogan as Yoda, Yoda and McKenna showing up as Obi Wan, teaching you about the food of the gods and how our our ancestors developed complex universal languages by getting smoked on acid. <laughs> well, not on acid. No, that was... I'm sorry, on shrooms. Yes, acid is a modern development. Yeah, Forgive me. <laughs> sorry, psilocybin. They munched enough magic mushrooms to jump from apes <laughs> to, to hominids. Yeah, so the other thing I found was that he, his... His style of oh, also firstly, yes, I do, I do know, so I, I do know at least one person like that. <laughs> I think everyone does. If, if you if you smoke enough weed and if you embrace it as an identity, you become the same one person. You become the same million strong person. Yeah, you just have. You also have to spend. Uh, you also watch every single documentary put out by the History Channel. <laughs> Put out by the History Channel and you recommend to everyone DMT, the spirit molecule, that documentary. <laughs> that, that just somehow becomes Narrated a really by Joe important Rogan. part of you as a person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we keep teasing that we're going to actually talk about this book. We really should at some point. How about, let's, let's, let's discuss hominid evolution. Well. We can discuss hominid evolution and then go on to McKenna's quest to find what was... The catalyst for hominid evolution. So, and so Jack. Plot, in plot your spoiler: view. It's magic mushrooms. <laughs> just, just. Strafaria cubensis. <laughs> McKenna analyzed many alternatives, <laughs> and he came to. He set out with no preconceived ideas, and he just happened to deduce logically that magic mushrooms must have been the catalyst (laughs) (laughs) but anyway so jack i just wanted to ask you a question as we're going to talk about human evolution right what to you is fundamentally humans like what is it about us that separates us from say other hominids that are now extinct or even other other like apes well, since you've, since you've set it up that nicely, Levi, I would say it's our self-awareness and primarily our linguistic capacity. <laughs> does, that, does that sound sufficiently in line with what McKenna proposed? No, I'm asking you, Jack. Don't, don't parrot. Don't, don't just 
parrot to me what McKenna says. What do you think fundamentally separates us? I don't think there's any firm line. I would say I would say we exist on a spectrum of say mm. self awareness, linguistic capacity, things like tool use, the ability to socially organize, the ability to undergo cultural evolution in a very flexible way. We we have these particular attributes to a greater extent than other animals, but I don't think there's there's a firm line. Do they come from even if there's not a single line, because even within humans there's like some diversity of like, you know, people have you know different linguistic capacities or whatever. <laughs> uh but um is do you think all though that sort of nexus of traits come from potentially like a single wellspring? Like I don't know if you want it would want to I probably would be uh I would not be inclined to boil it down to a single mutation, but kind of a, a single kind of underlying difference. It's hard to it's hard to pinpoint something. I mean I'm I'm sure it's it's not at a single Gene locus. His um, no, no, of course not. A single gene locus. Multifactorial. So my my, <laughs> you have the I've human been thinking... gene. You stick <laughs> it in anything and it becomes a person. <laughs> stick it in a fruit fly and it'll become a person, and immediately start asking for magic mushrooms. That's so funny. I think I think the way that I would characterize it is that so. There's this idea of the extended phenotype, right? High level, high level. You've read the extended phenotype where you've at least like looked into it a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but a quick explanation. The extended phenotype is like the way... So the phenotype of an organism is like the physical expression of the gene. So like a person's skin color or like a spider's like distinctive exoskeleton shape you know, one species of spider compared to another species of spider. Um, the extended phenotype is essentially the behavioral extension of the genes, not just, so the genes expressing themselves in the world, not just through the physical body, but through that body's behaviors. Um, so a classic example of that would be like the distinctive way that different species of spiders build their their webs or their nests, like the funnel web spider versus like, uh, the garden spider that builds those like cross-shaped spider webs. Um, that's the extended phenotype. And another thing would be like uh, the other classic example is like uh, peacocks, right? The way they dance. Um, so the plumage is their physical phenotype and their bit dances and their sexual selection that occurs is like their extended phenotype. Well, humans, I would, I would suggest have maybe what Deutsch would call, I don't think he says this, but like a universal, a universal extended phenotype. There is, there's potentially an unbounded repertoire of potential behaviors and expressions of our uh, behaviors in the world Uh, that can go from anything from like kinship systems in various indigenous societies all the way to creating like Manhattan and sending people to Mars. There's, there's no apparent limit to the repertoire of our extended phenotype. That's what I, that's where, that's where I've come to recently. Yeah. I'm in, in quite a number of things on this subject. I'm inclined to agree with David Deutsch. He, I recommend to everyone listening, uh, his, his books is not a, a sarcastic recommendation. These, these are actually 
You hear that? All my friends who I talk about David Deutsch with, I've converted Jack. (laughs) I've converted him. So, having said that, could could how how did we go from a dumb, stupid little A running around on the savannah, hitting each other with sticks and and mm. and to the to the whatever. unbounded phenotype to the unbounded universal extended phenotype of elon Musk go from a putting a tesla to around mars to dogecoin <laughs> to 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 joe rogan terence mckenna and nfts Diab- and video games and how NFTs did we get to this and diablo this wonderful point so so how did we get to this point well, let's consult a scientist. Let's consult a serious scientist. Back to the text. Yeah. Well, how about I'll I'll open this this up with a quote, which will lead into which which we can pull at. There are a lot of threads hanging off this one. So <laughs> this is an entire special thread hanging off. <laughs> there's, Here we go. There's, there's many threads hanging off this. This is kind of the crux of the argument. <laughs> yeah. So I'll. I'll I'll do two quotes. These are these are really good quotes from the section called You Are What You Eat, which might give a clue to how humans evolved. <laughs> so the first quote Eating a plant or an animal is a way of claiming its power, a way of assimilating its magic to oneself. Okay, so bear that in mind. <laughs> he goes on to say The strategy of the early hominid omnivores was to eat everything that seemed food like and to vomit whatever was unpalatable. Plants, insects, and small animals found edible by this method were then inculcated into their diet. A changing diet or an omnivorous diet means exposure to an ever-shifting chemical equilibrium. An organism may regulate this chemical input through internal processes, but ultimately mutagenic influences will increase and a greater than usual number of genetically variant individuals will be offered up to the process of natural selection. The results of this natural selection are accelerated changes in neural organization, states of consciousness, and behavior. No change is permanent. Each gives way to yet another. All flows. Sorry for the pauses. My handwriting is absolutely atrocious and it's a bit hard to read sometimes. So, from... We can unpack that quote. There's a lot here to unpack. And within this lies the secret of human evolution. <laughs> Humanity is he he is, of course, using the foremost in neo-Darwinist theory to support his logic here. Let's let's get yeah, into so it. Richard Richard Dawkins has written him a letter back in time to ask for some tips. <laughs> Rich Dawkins, move the fuck over. <laughs> <laughs> it's Terence is here. <laughs> Culture is a cage. <laughs> So, basically, what, what sparked the beginning of evolution from dumb idiot hominids to humans was something in the diet, something mutagenic. Now, of course, it couldn't have been... So, there, 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 there was... You've, you've, got, you've got dumb monkeys, right? You've got, you've got our ancestors... Look how dumb they were. This mutagen. Yeah, really dumb. Really Running dumb. Running around in the savannah. Being eaten by tigers. Mm. Not being omnivorous, right? 
<laughs> is climate change. Climate change made made it so that our ancestors had to be omnivorous. They needed to to accommodate these changes to their environment and eat more things. They became omnivorous. Being omnivorous is mutagenic, right? There were new opportunities for natural selection and the accumulation of traits that would eventually lead to the ability for humans to have this, this unbounded phenotype. So we started sampling all of these different foods, spitting out whatever we couldn't eat, maybe dying if it were really toxic. But we eventually built up a repertoire of things that we knew we could eat. And some of these things were not only nutritious, but psychedelic. <laughs> a different type of nutritious. A different type of nutrition for reality. <laughs> and with, with discovering these psychedelic compounds, the aspects of humanity that make us us were accentuated. And it's, look, it, it's kind of hard to work out what precisely he means by these psychedelic compounds providing a mutagenic stimulus. Cause he, he's not totally consistent. He's not the most consistent writer. <laughs> so no, no one whom we've read have been consistent apart from who would have thought Bible. somebody who spent three decades of his life taking magic mushrooms would be a very coherent writer. Well, he, he might be operating at a level of coherence above that which we can understand, given that we, we haven't fried our brains with concerted use of psychedelics. <laughs> we haven't, maybe we just haven't taken enough psychedelics, Jack. Yeah. Okay, so my, my most charitable interpretation of what he means by accelerating human evolution is that there are certain traits which have proven to be extremely advantageous. So say so the high linguistic capacity just before we jump into that, Jack, yeah. just, just as a note, by mutagen, he just means like something that can alter DNA. So yeah. a classic example would be like uh, UV radiation from my son can mm. act as a mutagen and those mutations in the case of skin cancer is aberrant mutations. But the fact is UV has come in, mutated some of the DNA. So he's saying that mm. the, the food... The, the psychedelic mushrooms. The, there's something specifically about the psychedelic compounds such as psilocybin in the human nervous system that was causing mutations mm -hmm. that were able to be passed down from generation to generation and were a locus of natural selection. Yeah. So, again, I, I'm being as generous as I can be here and trying to keep... <laughs> Be generous. His view, his view of accelerated human evolution in line with how the, the, the broader scientific consensus of what constitutes evolution, how evolution yes. functions. So, so my professional internet anthropologist reading of this... PhD. Was that... <laughs> yeah, an internet PhD in internet anthropology is that there are certain characteristics which are advantageous to humans. And such as having a big dick. Such as, yeah, 
that being foremost, but then there are ones of secondary importance, like language, visual quality, executive planning, <laughs> modeling yes, the future, yeah, executive planning. All, all secondary, secondary to having, to having, a having an, yeah, an inconveniently large dick. <laughs> all these secondary gorillas. characteristics are Little enhanced tiny by eating magic mushrooms. Look at humans, who's going extinct, gorillas are. Exactly. Exactly. And it's because they haven't discovered magic mushrooms. And so, magic mushrooms have a number of benefits, unqualified benefits. One of these that Terence McKenna notes is they improve visual acuity in low doses. (laughs) That's a key. That's like a key. It's like in, in low doses. They definitely do not increase visual acuity at high doses. No, there is research. Roland Fisher in the 1960s, or late 60s, he gave students low doses of psilocybin. Psilocybin is the... uh, Psilocybin and psilocin, but it's one of the the active ingredients in magic mushrooms. It's one of the reasons why you would eat these preferentially to porcini mushrooms. (laughs) That... He gave them low doses, and the students who'd been given psilocybin were more able. They, they picked more quickly than the control group without magic mushrooms. The moment when two lines stopped being parallel, okay? So, it has been definitively proven. I didn't look into this study. He just, Terrence McKenna just said it. I don't know how big it was. I don't know how it was carried out. I didn't fact-check any of the claims in this book. (laughs) Yeah, I I should say he doesn't cite anything in this book, but I'm assuming that this was an enormous stage three clinical trial. (laughs) At least 50,000 participants that has categorically proved that taking magic mushrooms at low doses has been reproduced many times by independent (laughs) organisations. Well, by by us. Published in science. Oh, yes. (laughs) It's certainly increased my visual acuity. When I was yeah, so when, when you take Eldritch magic mushrooms gods. and the walls start breathing, that's not because you're hallucinating. It's actually because the walls are always <laughs> breathing and you're just seeing it clearly. You're just now. seeing so, them clearly. <laughs> you're seeing the non-parallel lines of the walls. Obviously, converge. this helps you hunt. Clearly, if if you had to choose between attacking a lion with a spear sober or having just taken a slug of cubies then <laughs> clearly, clearly you'd prefer to be high when you're doing it because and, so, you need your spear when you're hunting an animal or your your arrow or your 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 uh, stone from your slingshot to travel in a straight line or in in a trajectory that you can estimate accurately so clearly visual acuity is incredibly important for early hominids yeah. to have a selective advantage compared to compared to their well this is the other thing he doesn't talk about other hominid species but i assume compared to other hominid species yeah compared to the dumbasses who weren't getting fried on mushrooms <laughs> the the ones the ones who were taking mushrooms did better they just they hunt better so trait number two trait one good for men visual acuity trait number two this is good for women. This is so Terence McKenna's view of what constitutes men and women was is is very modern. <laughs> men men like killing things and women hunting. like talking. Women like talking. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
So facts. Um, <laughs> so facts. Yeah. So, and th- and this is why magic mushrooms are good, are, are better for women than for men. So, women take them. Women in hunter gatherer societies were the gatherers. They they need to be good with language. They need to be able to remember where stuff to pick, where all the good berries, where the good mushroom patches are. They need to remember these places. They need to communicate the locations of these places to other women. They need to coordinate the group while the men are out fried on mushrooms, throwing spears and rocks at things with their enhanced visual acuity. Women are back at home looking for food, foraging, talking to each other. They take mushrooms. They get. I they feel get like better they could talking. benefit from some enhanced visual acuity. Well, I mean, yeah, of course the women have enhanced visual acuity because they've been taking mushrooms, but they're not so much using the enhanced... But to pick berries? Yeah, to pick berries. They can see the berries better. But more importantly, <laughs> the whole time they're talking, McKenna notes, when you're hunting, it's a stoic activity. You're, you're sitting there. You're not. You don't you're want out to on you're the plains. To anyone else. You're just sitting there with your spear. There is no point at which something. the hunters sit down and come up with any sort of like strategy and communicate to one another complex ideas energy. about the landscape. No, that none of that. They just no. get the spears and they go out on the savannah. Anyone, anyone who has spent time in a group of men knows that men don't talk. They just sit there, periodically attack something, and <laughs> the, the ones with the greatest visual acuity do that the most successfully. That's the essence of masculinity. High visual acuity, not much talking, spearing things. So, Science. trait two, magic mushrooms improve linguistic proficiency. So women chatting right. away, gathering berries, having a chat, good old chinwag. Take some mushies, you can get better at it. Speak good, essentially. Yeah, you you speak you speak real good. So now is so this is where my generous interpretation comes in because if you if you were just to take lots of mushrooms and be really good at these things that definitely helped early hominids. (laughs) <laughs> that wouldn't lead to evolution. I mean, it's not... Lamarck, he, he has a section on why he is not Lamarckian. So Lamarck proposed that evolution happened by a single organism behaves in a certain way, gets good at something, and can then pass that knowledge on or that ability on to its offspring. The classic so example being giraffes. giraffes. Yeah, giraffes strange to get to leaves really high up that stretched out their necks. And so that stretched neck of one giraffe is then inherited. And McKenna says, no, I'm not, I'm not proposing that people take lots of mushrooms, get really sharp vision and get really good at talking and give those abilities directly to their children. However, he then goes on to basically behave as if that is how it operates. But <laughs> I, have, I, have, I don't know if this is a, re- a revised McKennaism if I can, if I can claim, gone some sort of authorship as well for this evolutionary theory, but perhaps what he meant, Neo McKenna McKennaism, what, what he meant to say is, well, it'll now be Jackism McKennaism. Is that certain individuals have 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 differing capacities for visual acuity? And for linguistic capacity. I, as a man, clearly, 
and better at visual acuity and leave <laughs> most of the talking to women because that's how genders work. So the people who take magic mushrooms, those mushrooms allow an organism to manifest its, its inborn capacities or inborn proclivities for good vision and good talking. And the ones who had higher innate capacities obviously were developed more with mushrooms. And so they will have more children because mushrooms have uncovered these talents that might not have been expressed otherwise. So if you're just, if you're just a dumb ape not taking mushrooms, then you might not be realising your potential for talking and realising that evolutionary advantage. But when, you, when everyone starts taking mushrooms... That's when being really good at speaking comes into its own. And they have more children. He also then says that at, at moderate doses, it's, it's an aphrodisiac, taking mushrooms. So they, they have more children anyway because they're all, they're super horny. I still think his logic's like, I still think there's something off there about that. But I'd look, I'm not saying this is... Wait, can we, can we try and bridge, can we try and bridge the gap there? No, 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 can we... I'm trying to salvage something that is somewhat congruent with how evolution works. Okay, because <clears throat> say you take it and you say you've got two, two say, just to simplify it, two, two people in a group of proto-hominids. They both take the psychedelic mushroom, right? But one of them gets an enhanced, gets, say, enhanced visual acuity and the other one doesn't. Mm. Is that what he's saying? That the differential uh, proclivity to be affected in this way by psychedelic mushrooms? Or is he saying that, and therefore the person who had that proclivity or that pre, pre uh, that existing, uh, what would you say? I guess, uh, potential to, to be affected positively by the mushroom, they are more likely to survive. Is that what you're saying? Or is that an updated way of revising it? Can we get the logic to work out here? I think that's Jack Levi McKennaism. We're, we're, we're formulating a new theory that makes a little bit more sense than what he said. It can't just be that I take magic mushrooms and I have increased visual acuity Therefore, I survive, and therefore I pass. What? What then? Do I just because I survive, I'm more likely to survive with better visual acuity? Doesn't then mean that there is some selective mechanism happening? Then, like that's passed on. Yes. Well, hence why what I'm saying, what I'm saying, what my what my upgrade is, is that life is pretty much an RPG. <laughs> we know. We know this, and so just like in RPGs. When you eat food, you get a stat boost. So yes, and it the, is that the stat people boost. who get greater stat boosts from eating mushrooms are the ones who survive because clearly the stat boost that you get from from and they pass that stat boost from down cubensis to... mushrooms are really good and they help you. So if you can capitalize on this more, that's what makes you pass your genes on. The genes that get passed on are the ones that that mushrooms really like. really help. So really, on. that the mushrooms are selecting which genes are present in the gene pool, really. So in a way, in a weird way, the mushrooms have actually shaped uh, homo sapiens. Like, in a, in a way, 
we are a reflection of the mushroom in our ability to think and to to form like complex language and complex society, right? Yeah. Well, you you you're putting it. We have been shaped by the mushroom. You're putting it too mildly. You say in a way. What Terence McKenna is saying <laughs> is in a way. It just is. <laughs> this is how humans evolved. You have you have idiot apes. They eat magic mushrooms. Boom! On the African savanna, you have because here's humans. the thing. Here's my only thing, Jack. Here's the thing, and I'm, I, you know, I love I love Terence. I'm not not talking down about Terry. However, you go and say something unscientific. <laughs> <laughs> However, I want to remind you that this is this is a reputable podcast. <laughs> we have a reputation to to maintain and uphold here. <laughs> so, my only issue is that. Other, other animals, like have been observed, like getting high on psychedelic. Yeah, like those right? YouTube videos of dogs of eating magic mushrooms, and like the the wild like leopards and shit, like mushing out. And so, <laughs> like, it, like, where, <laughs> like where, 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 why, why don't we have like, you know. Leopards roaming around the Amazon, you know, having conversa- like complex conversations with each other and creating tools and stuff. Wait, where is where is the Terence McKenna of Jack Russell Terriers? Is what I want to know. <laughs> that's my only. That's a, or inversely, like, could is he saying that if we got apes or monkeys? Say you've got a bunch. Say you've got some monkeys. Say some like monkeys that have like short lifespan, so we can do it pretty quickly. Like. Uh, I don't know, like rhesus monkeys or something, <laughs> and we we feed them with mushrooms <laughs> for for enough generations <laughs> that eventually they will evolve <laughs> like uh, a universal extended phenotype. Is that what you're saying? Is that uh, is is Terence saying that we should feed monkeys magic mushrooms? That's what I'm getting out of this. The next the next Planet of the Apes reboot. <laughs> The new plot would <laughs> be they just got a bunch of chimps tie as a kite. Okay. Uh, and what about level three? So level two made you horny, which obviously yeah, increases so- your evolutionary like advantage, but also level three. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So the, 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 the three levels of psilocybin dosing, low dose, chemical binoculars. Second, higher doses. Stimulant increases sexual activity, favors human reproduction. I should also say it favors reproduction between groups of mushroom users because mushroom users will recognize mushroom users. So, a normal dumbass. From a distance. You'll get, you'll get a troop of apes, <laughs> see another troop of apes. If none of them are using mushrooms, they'll kill each other because it's a dominator society, not a partnership mm. society. Like, look at chimps, which is very catalyzed by psychedelic use. You give chimps mushrooms, they turn into bonobos. Fact. Yeah, right. He, yes. <laughs> I want to give. I, I want to see. I want to see somebody give chimps a pack, a troop of chimps, magic mushrooms. <laughs> well, this this is what organizations like Maps are for. <laughs> I don't want them looking at humans. I want them feeding apes mushrooms. Psychedelic science. <laughs> so. So that's that's level two. That's level two is another reason why magic mushrooms are such 
an an evolutionary advantage because as soon as two troops of chimps or whatever hominid forebear we're talking about take mushrooms instead of immediately attacking each other they're gonna have sex they're gonna reproduce they're gonna have more mushroom babies they're, they're, they've won they've won the evolutionary arms race there you go humans three ape the highest human. yeah you get humans when I say mushroom babies, I'm using that interchangeably with Homo sapiens. <laughs> it's like that scene out two thousand one Space Odyssey, you know, when it's the babe, the the, the the star baby comes the, down, the monolith, the mushroom baby. Yeah. It's, it's a, a giant big mushroom. mushroom. <laughs> but level level three, the highest doses, full blown shamanic ecstasy, full blown reality. Full-blown hominid reality. Hominid reality. This is <laughs> nine hominid. grams of dried cubies straight <laughs> into your brain. You get <laughs> ego dissolution. It promotes community bonding and, most importantly, group sex. Orgies. I'm not. I'm not embellishing that. That is actually he. He says no. No. Like quote it. It promotes quote group it. sex. Read it. Read it. Read it. <laughs> Oh, well, I've got a quote. It's, it's um, the tendency to regulate and schedule sexual activity within the group by linking it to a lunar cycle of mushroom availability may have been important as a first step towards ritual and religion. Now, this is a clear example of where he hedges his language by using the word may. He then proceeds to... Does, to, to treat it as if it is just true that, that early hominids got high on the full moon <laughs> and had orgies, mushroom orgies. Those of you who are less well-educated and might think that a more obvious lunar cycle or something that is roughly in periodicity with the moon, say the menstrual cycle, might regulate sexual activity, you're wrong. It's actually the mushroom growing cycle that is much more proximate to human sexuality than a menstrual cycle. Yes. Obviously, science. Obviously. Go read a book. So, and one of the important mechanisms that... Does he discuss this in this book? I, I don't know if this is something that somebody else has you've, said. You've read more than one Terence McKenna book? <laughs> this, this is the only Terence McKenna I've read. No, or if this is just something floating around in the psychedelic hippie verse uh, of like, if you have a community orgy, then... <clears throat> Uh, you don't know who's the father of which kid, so you have more incentive for the men in particular to like look after the children uh, because they don't know which one's theirs. Whereas, like if if you have a clear if you have a clear patrilineal like line, you can you know which kid comes from which father, and there's not too much cucking going on. Then like mm-hmm. <laughs> then you've got like. You've got reasons why, like, if I have my kid, I know that's my kid, and I know that other kid is Jack's kid, so I'll kill that kid, and I'll kill Jack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Obviously. Un- unless we've... But, unless yeah, we have an orgy. Given that we live in a society where we all take mushrooms, that hasn't happened. Also, yeah. neither of us have kids, but... <laughs> well, I mean, this... Clearly, Plato, in writing The Republic and talking about a similar problem, foresaw McKenna, brought back <laughs> to ancient Greece... The, the knowledge, probably having communed with McKenna in the future using mushrooms <laughs> and wrote it the Republic. This is... Well, clearly the Oracle at Delphi was getting getting mushed out of her brains. Yeah. No. Communing with McKenna. It goes without saying. 
I would like to add a few things on on the subject of <laughs> mushroom on. mutagenicity. Proceed. Yeah, so McKenna does demonstrate his his scientific credentials by saying he he brings up an objection that might seem obvious that if taking mushrooms entails such a low cost and gives such benefits, why why would we encode in our genomes effectively mushroom advantages when we can just eat the mushrooms? Why not just eat them? He answers this by saying, and yet we all have these enhancements without taking mushrooms. So how did the mushroom modifications get into the genome? He is elegantly answered the question by saying, nah, you're wrong. I'm right. <laughs> He's, he fixed it. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. We have the mushroom modifications in our genomes. He also, this is somewhat related. This is related to visual acuity. I just wanted to, um, to bring this quote in because it's, uh, well, it addresses, it addresses a, an important issue, one that is getting worse in our society. He doesn't, he doesn't propose a solution. Lack of orgies. He, he frames it, well, that, that's one among many, but this is an even more important problem. <laughs> so, as for visual acuity, perhaps the widespread need for corrective lenses among modern humans is a legacy of the long period of artificial enhancement of vision through psilocybin use. Science. You're, you, you, you're seeing where he's coming from? There's a lot of four-eyed freaks walking around who don't have enough visual acuity and are relying on exogenous visual acuity when they could be mm. relying on chemical visual acuity. Maybe that's a way of our bodies... That's how our bodies are telling us that we're... We're effectively psychedelic deficient. We're psilocybin deficient. Psychedelically deficient. I like that. <clears throat> Do you think that could be like a vitamin D deficiency? Like you could go down to the doctor and they're like, oh, I'm feeling a bit unwell. It takes your bloods. Oh, you're a little bit low in mushies, mate. Vitamin P, a... psilocybin. <laughs> I think you've got a psychedelic deficiency. I'm going to give you a prescription eight grams of psilocybin mushrooms a day for the next week. See if that does the job. <laughs> You'll be seeing pretty clearly. So, I, th I, think, I think we've worked out how humans evolved. Dumb apes, psychedelics. There's some sort of magic that we tried to sort out, but I, I'm not sure we did it justice. You have us. Now the question... Is, yeah, I feel like it's that thing from South Park where it's like, <laughs> step one, steal some underpants. Step two, I don't know, step three, profit. <laughs> step one, take yeah. some mushies. Step two, step three, humans. <laughs> humans. Yeah, so, so now, that, now that that has been firmly established, unimpeachably established. We're going to proceed forward. With that as an operational basis for the rest of for the rest of the conversation, this is true. And this when, is taken as when an Levi axiom. says "we," he means this in a in an all encompassing way. It's all humans. <laughs> in, I speak on behalf of truth, science. <laughs> yeah. Upon hearing this truth, you, you cannot help but be convinced. And so, we a global we will continue on now with this as <laughs> as an operating assumption. 
we've got to work out what this plant was that that um stimulated the hominid mind and led to modern humans. We've already spoiled it. We've spoiled the narrative arc. We're Magic sorry. mushrooms. <laughs> well, what? We fucked it. Well, what? Yeah. Well, what did this? He. Uh, so, what are the possible alternatives, Jack? Well, how about first of all, he he went through a list of things that the this ur plant, the the, the fountainhead of all knowledge, had had to fulfil. There, there are certain constraints. These constraints were, one, must be an African plant. That's where modern humans arose. You know, it, it, it doesn't help if this thing is growing in Antarctica. Yeah. Can't use it. So it has to be an African plant. Okay, wait, wait. Let's, like, that's a reasonable... Like, let's just give him credit, right? Like, that's a reasonable... That's not, that's not unreasonable. Okay, I'm, that's like, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm, fair I'm, I'm being a dickhead. I, that's, not, that's not bad. If you, if you take <laughs> as a given that... That the necessary condition for human evolution w- was that we ate some sort of psychedelic plant or fungus, then yes, that's that's it, not an unreasonable. And you take take it that humans originated in Africa, then one and one equals three. Yeah, yeah, ba- basically, basically. So number two must be native to grassland because this is where our ancestors expanded their omnivorous diets, expanded their consciousness. I'll give him that. Yeah? I'll give him. I'll give it give him I'll that. Give him, I'll give him that. Sure. Three, must require no preparation. So he, he says, say, DMT in, in grass. This is a clever one. This is a clever one. This is a clever one. DMT in grasses, you need to isolate. You, if you're going to ingest it orally, it needs to be with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Or, or you've got to smoke it or vaporize it. So it needs to be something that a dumb ape who's foraging just picks up, sticks in their mouth, and then suddenly their visual acuity is bonkers. Their capacity <laughs> for language is crazy. And they're, they're communing with the sex. machine elves. So the, the logic here, I think, is reasonable, is essentially cooking is a technology that requires... Like, other animals don't cook. So cooking is after... The, the leap yeah. to hominid. So, after therefore, you stop being a it can't... After you stop being a stupid chimp. Like, so, therefore, this thing mustn't have required any preparation whatsoever. Yeah. Which narrows the scope of possible candidates. Yeah. Where he, he really engaged in a very uh, Arthur Conan Doyle sort of style elimination of of uh, alternative hypotheses. Mm-hmm. So, let's, yeah. let's keep on going. So, there's four. It must be easily available to a nomadic population. So, these people weren't living settled lives. They were nomadic. So, you can't just have this, this little oasis, this little Eden, where there are, there, there are clusters of this, this magic plant. It needs to be all over the place. One little it grove. needs to be something that a foraging hominid comes across, eats, and discovers... Yeah, discovers the vegetable logos, as Peterson would say. And then five, must must confer immediate and tangible benefits to those who eat it. And we've gone over those immediate and tangible benefits. The, the, the obvious benefits of taking mushrooms. So, so 
now that we've got the the constraints in place, we can talk about things like that it, it, mush taking ingesting mushrooms is not as ingest, ingesting mushrooms is not as immediate as vaping DMT. However, vaping DMT mm. requires that you have an understanding of such things as electrodynamics <laughs> and, like, and how to that, crystallize number three. So that that violate, violates uh, rule, yeah, constraint three. <laughs> so clearly, we were ingesting mushrooms before we were vaping DMT. <laughs> before we were making grape-flavoured DMT vape juice, <laughs> blasting <laughs> off into hyperspace using that. So what, what, are, what are some candidates that we can reject? So there's... There's Ibogaine, which comes from, and I apologize for my pronunciation of these, <laughs> these scientific plant names. I'm, I'm an imbecile and I don't know how to say them. It's Ibogaine. I think so. So it's, it's from the plant Tabernathy Iboga. Iboga. And it's used by those of the Bwiti religion among the Fang of Gabon. He says Zaire which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo from the year 1997, I think. So he says that this is probably well done, not... Jack. So, You're clearly a hominid. Clearly, I, well, I mean, I took my morning dose of magic mushrooms, so that's why I'm switched on. <laughs> I'm glad that you know when, when, when Zaire became the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's a very strange fact <laughs> to know off the top of your head. <laughs> you know, I might be totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you really you could have said anything and I would have believed you. <laughs> it's all about confidence. Doesn't matter if you're wrong, you just have to say it confidently. And then offer a qualification afterwards so you can scurry away if you did get it wrong. So the problem the problem with Ibogaine is that yes, it is it is a visionary plant. It is a visionary chemical. But there's at least according to McKenna, because I don't actually know this, there's no evidence of a long history of use. It's also not a grassland plant. And at small doses, this is really important, it impairs visual acuity at small doses. Whoa, game over! Yeah. Game over! Game Bang, over yeah, that's game. finished. That's eliminated. That's not to say it's not a worthwhile plant. It's so um, worthwhile, we should do it. We point. should do it. But, but not in order to evolve into an even greater hominid. Yeah, exactly. Because it will so, impair our visual acuity. Are we the crazy ones? 100,000 listeners special. Jack and Levi take, take Ibogaine, Ibogaine on camera. <laughs> on camera and, get, and talk about, I don't know, the next McKenna book. Well, we'll write the next McKenna book. The Ichi. <laughs> So, we know that it's not Ibogaine. He also says it can't be DMT found in grasses for, re for reasons that we discussed earlier. DMT is broken down really, really quickly in the human body, so you either need to, to inhale it, so you smoke it or vape it, so it, it gets into your bloodstream really quickly before... At a high enough concentration up. so that you can blast yep. off into the multiverse. Or you take it with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And then you can get you can get broiled in your own DMT juices for twelve hours straight as you shit yourself. <laughs> for a few hours. And you, it's an emetic as well, so you just shit yourself and throw up <laughs> while you're tripping balls. And there's and there's a shaman, you know, shaking some marikas over the top of you, and you, 
talking to you in some language you don't understand. I, just, I don't know what, the, what is appealing about this experience. If, if I were given, if I were given the opportunity, I probably would do it. I would one hundred percent do it. I would like to do it. I plan to do it. However, <laughs> however, <laughs> however, I, I mean, I would like to do it. Yes, it sounds like an incredible experience from other people's reports. It sounds like a worthwhile thing to do. Mm. However, I can't say I look forward to one, but I would do it. <laughs> they also do like some of them. Also do like like various types of tobacco or whatever uh, ceremonies beforehand, like sort of uh, like detoxing or whatever, or like you don't eat for like a day or <laughs> just like just. Humbles you. <laughs> <laughs> just the pile driver of DMT. After setting out his um his his preconditions for what what this ur plant must be. After after eliminating DMT in grasses and Tabernathy iboga, he he then goes on to say that it's extra, actually Strafaria cubensis, magic mushrooms. Likely we also need to rule quickly rule cat. out quickly rule out uh, LSD because LSD is a modern drug. Yeah, that was synthesized and in when was LSD synthesized in like by the fifties by Hoffman? Yeah, like fifties fifty two or something like that, right? Yeah, and then kind of like blew up in the sixties. So like, mm-hmm. uh, so that's a modern drug, and even ergot. Uh, <clears throat> So, you know, that contains a fungus that grows on, like, wheat and barley and stuff. Uh, even that, you could say, well, uh, our domestication of those sorts of crops that actually contain ergot didn't happen until much later anyway. So it's the same thing with, like, vaping DMT. You can't create agriculture if you're not already a hominin, mm-hmm. right? So you've got to have the yeah. mushies first. Okay, what else? Oh, peyote. I well, don't believe... Also, ergot's got a bunch of other problems because it's... It's inconsistent. But sometimes you'll yeah, have and sometimes you'll just get poisoned. Sometimes and just die. Sometimes you just get poisoned and die. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's inconvenient. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. even something yeah, like the like mescaline. I, I don't. Did he explicitly rule out mescaline? But I, I believe you could rule out mescaline. He doesn't talk about it much. But but mescaline, you could rule out mescaline is, in, is not found in Africa, right? So. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, there aren't any mescaline contained. They're pre- predominantly found in, in, in cacti, like, uh, what is it, the Devil's Breath or whatever it's called? Um, it's, it's, in a, it's in a few. It's in peyote. San Pedro. It's in San Pedro, yeah. It's in peyote. And also eating those cacti, as someone who, who tried blending up a foot of San Pedro and drinking it, it's pretty hard to keep it down. It's not... Yeah, it's not something that you can <laughs> pick up off the experience. ground and munch on it. And it's covered in spikes. It's disgusting. Eat three kilograms of, 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 of San Pedro off the ground. It's not going to happen. So we're just ruling out a couple of others just in case any inquisitive yeah. viewers were wondering. Would San Aminated Pedro Mascara? be a candidate? Yeah, so Aminated Mascara. He discusses this one at length because it was actually an alternative that is considered mm-hmm. by some other early researchers of these questions, which he doesn't like. <laughs> uh, but at least in part... Uh, it doesn't fulfill the uh, well. It's not. It's not terribly psychedelic on the one hand, and two. I don't believe it hits the visual acuity thing, right? No, no. It um. It 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 worsens your visual acuity. 
mostly it makes you feel really bad. Yeah. It's very inconsistent in terms of bringing on visionary states of mind, shamanic ecstasy. Shamanic ecstasy, yeah. So it doesn't hit level two and three. So maybe even if you hit level... level, Sorry, even if you hit level three... I don't think it grows in the right place. It doesn't grow in the right place. And even if you hit level three and you get visions, you're not going through levels two, one and two. You're not getting mm. visual acuity and, and like horny and stuff first, right? So Yeah. So Siberian tribes people used it and may still use it, but wrong place. I mean, you've... You need you need to have already evolved to get to be a Siberian tribes person. The, the the cart being put in front of the horse. Yeah, you need to evolve. You need to take food of the gods X, migrate out of Africa into Siberia, mm-hmm. and then figure out how to take Amanita muscaria and not die. Exactly. And taking Amanita muscaria will be part of a process that we'll discuss later, which is how human society, to a large extent, has been concerned with trying to recapture this lost Eden, this lost African grassland where, where Strophaeria cubensis were plentiful, where we could commune with vegetable intelligence freely. And we, we, we Now, this is an interesting point that we should talk about, Jack, is that he, he literally... Was there anything else on that point before I bring this up? Well, there was a bit about... He, he does talk about why plants make hallucinogens, which is worth bringing up. It doesn't yeah, so my point, up, can, no, my point can, is, 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 uh, can come after that because I was going to talk about plant communication. So we, let's talk about that one first. Yes, exactly. Okay, go. Well, plant communication. Well, it's not just plant communication. It's communication throughout nature. So he talks about nature as this unified whole. We... We, in, in our dominator culture-addled minds, think of nature as this permanent state of warfare where organisms are trying to outcompete each other, to pass on their genes, to expand... Blood in tooth and ...at the expense of others. Whereas nature is not so red in tooth and claw, it is a fundamentally cooperative process or a cooperative being. It's, it's only... We humans under the influence of dominator culture that don't understand this. Mm. It's you might think a lion eating a gazelle is is an act of adversarial nature, but it's not. It's um I don't I don't know how actually to the explain gazelle that way. Has the paradigm, but we can just ignore it. And realize that it should contribute to the whole and has sacrificed yes. itself willingly to be to to nourish the the lion. Exactly. It's, it's screams of pain uh, are an illusion. They, it's, they're actually screams of joy in being a part of the wholeness <laughs> of nature. <laughs> so, 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 pla- so, wait, wait, wait. Okay, to what degree, without <clears throat> taking the piss too much, like, to what degree is he kind of right? Okay, for example... Not much. Tree, the roots of trees. No, no, wait. Let's come, Jack, Jackie, Jack. I, okay, no, I, I, I will, Jack. I will put on my internet anthropologist hat. <laughs> come on, you've undergone a lot of rigorous training in order to be able to have these critical conversations. <laughs> <laughs> okay, trees have roots. Those I agree, roots, I, I agree, can communicate 
with one with with the trees can communicate via uh, chemical signals from in in their root system. So like if one tree is infected, they can be putting out like chemical signals into the soil, and the other trees can, can like know that there's an infection going on and do whatever they need to do to protect themselves. Okay, that's one thing. Okay, eukaryotes, like, you know, the large uh, networks of fungi, the really, the really, the soil fungi, they communicate, quote-unquote communicate, or have chemical relationships with the root systems of trees, for example, right? So is there some truth in, in McKenna's point that, like, uh, networks of plants and, and fungi and stuff uh in some way, like sort of living symbiotically through chemical communication. I must agree. Okay, great. So he's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. We can end. <laughs> Everyone should read Food of the Gods. Okay. Everyone should believe but everything however, however, okay. Now this is where okay. So this is where okay. Now whether or not you call that communication is. Up for the bait. Is that is well, he that goes communication? A step <laughs> he calls it language because he says it involves signal processing. Well, here's the thing. There's here we go. Okay, okay. So two trees have a network of roots. There's chemical exchange between the roots of one tree and another. Okay, maybe certain chemical signatures are only released on certain conditions. So we're going to grant, just just for the sake of argument, that that is communication in some way then is there language is there actually language and then finally if humans ingest a chemical that chemical enters our central nervous system such as psilocybin crossing the blood-brain barrier and interacting with our central nervous system he is then saying that interaction there is a form of communication and it's not just communication it's actually language the mushrooms are speaking to us yeah, he, he describes it as an exopheromone. So a, a signalling molecule that acts across species barriers. What do they call that thing? Uh, do the, you know, the bodybuilding.com, they say don't eat soy because it's a... It's a, it's a phytoestrogen. And it's a phytoestrogen. Turn, turns so this is, a soy This boy. would be like a phyto... Say <laughs> attention to a soy boy. <laughs> this would be like a phyto or a myco exopheromone. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose so. He, um, <laughs> the, the, so, so he takes this as evidence that because humans respond in such a way to psilocybin and to some other compounds produced by plants or fungi and enter into a hallucinogenic state, that means that they're... There, there is a unity to nature, that nature is producing these signaling molecules to communicate with humans. In, in, in terms of evolution, in terms of evolution, though, yeah, I mean, I'm just not sure how that sort of thing would have evolved. And nature writ large with a capital N, Gaia. Gaia is yeah. communicating with humans through the mushroom. That's the, that's the logic. That's the, that's the argument that he's putting forward, basically. Yeah, and this is one of the few the few places where McKenna and I diverge. In that, for me, that <laughs> oh. implies some sort of teleology, Jack. some endpoint that nature nature has decided beforehand that 
humans are going to be able to interpret this signal from plants reliably in which case you would, you would question well, why isn't it more widely available why isn't it in every plant so that we can easily interact with it because because it's found in very few plants and and why isn't the experience more consistent and why aren't we all be giving the given the same yeah same because the way the way it is at the moment we lost this african eden with magic mushrooms growing everywhere and as such we moved away from partnership societies and denominator societies, which is bad for nature. He, he directly links this to environmental destruction. Yeah. So if we were given this ability, why, isn't, why don't all plants just produce psilocybin? Or why isn't it just endogenously produced and we have a steady state of reality juice in our brains? <laughs> I, I'm inclined to think that it's so let me think largely accidental that it, it interacts with a particular, I think it's a particular subclass of serotonin receptors in our brains. But then again, maybe I'm one male and therefore my role <laughs> is really to have good visual acuity and to throw spears at things. And not think, stop and thinking, mate. two, a product of dominator culture. I think those two uh, details... Uh, rule you out as being able to have a valid opinion, Jack. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Foiled. I mean, in, in that case, yeah, I'll, I'll give myself over entirely to the to the gospel of Terry. But he, how come he doesn't levy that criticism against himself? No. Well, because mad because he's had sufficiently feminizing. He's he's been feminized by the sufficiently yeah. feminized by the psychedelic mushrooms, and he's able to interpret somehow. Terence McKenna is able to interpret with high fidelity the intentions and the message of these mushrooms and commune them to us, communicate them to us. Precisely, because one of the most profound things that happens when you take a lot of psychedelics, is you commune with the transcendent other. Capital T, capital O. Capital O. o. <laughs> yeah, precisely. And the, the, the transcendent other is defined in a few ways in Fruit of the Gods, but mostly it seems to be the, the transcendent other is true nature, capital N nature, I, I need to emphasise, truly perceived. <laughs> It's a, it's a probably, or at least in my reading, it is, it's some sort of independent entity of humanity that you commune with when you take psychedelics. See, it's not entirely like, have you ever had a psychedelic experience, Jack? I think we've answered that a few <laughs> times already. Well, if you had, I don't want to assume anything. <laughs> <laughs> However, we've 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 had psychedelic experiences together. <laughs> <laughs> However, I don't know how amenable that experience is to any sort of consistent characterization. <laughs> to just to say the transcendent other is like yes, 
I have a shitload of psilocybin bouncing around my central nervous system and it's making all the wrong neurons fire right now <laughs> in all the wrong ways. I don't know if I can like pull back from those experiences. Anything other than to say that it's a very strange experience. But then is it something yeah. transcendent other in this kind of like, I don't know, deific sort of or, or whatever, like pan psych psychism sort of view of like okay you're literally communicating with something that is actually there however in your sober state you don't perceive or interact with it and you need this chemical in order to induce that interaction i i think that's a big big fucking step (laughs) yeah well maybe i just haven't haven't had enough psychedelic experiences but it's it's hard to know what if you're being given a message, it's hard to work out what it is. I I would say it's not impossible to, <laughs> to work out. <laughs> and that the higher the dose you take, the, the more difficult it is. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to concentrate on those sorts of things when you can't remember your own name. And then and then and then the 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 the, the retort one could retort, well, Jack you fucking male dominator pig, you. <laughs> you have not actually undergone one of these experiences facilitated by a trained shaman of a lineage that has the knowledge of how to interpret and how to guide these experiences properly. That's true, but what about the first, not even the first humans, but the first hominids to have come across magic mushrooms? Because they presumably wouldn't have had shamans. So they developed the Guiding school by, the, by taking the enough mushrooms. They started developing like it's like the Platonic Academy, but of mushies. So, mm. from whence springs the first philosophers? You know, right? Anaximander mm. and whatnot. They were just chatting in the same way, analogously. Mm. Like maybe these proto hominids were just mushing out. And they realized through their chatting that they could establish, like, here's how, here's like a methodology for correctly understanding the experience. And now Mm -hmm. the shaman all around the world, wherever they are, are ultimately descendants of that school of knowledge about how to interpret these experiences. You could hypothetically, like, by that logic, if you take enough mushrooms, you could actually derive these insights yourself, no? Like the early proto-hominids. It would make sense that it's sort of like Protestantism versus Catholicism. It's your personal relationship with with the 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 unbounded vegetable consciousness. You can achieve this state yourself. Where do you fall? Are you more of an orthodox shamanist sort of person? You need to go to school... You need to go to the church, as in have the guided experience. Or do you? Are you more of a? It's a personal. You're more of a Protestant, Anglican, like softball. It's your personal relationship with the mushroom. Well, given that my only experiences with the mushroom and its its friends have been personal, would you be open to going to mushroom school with a trained shaman? No, oh, I'd give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> if the option were open to me, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> Interesting. What about you? I I would like to give it a go. I think it would be a worthwhile experience. I'm I am I'm highly skeptical. <laughs> However, uh, yes. I think <laughs> quite skeptical. You can't strictly speaking having even had the psychedelic experiences. They are an extremely strange thing and I don't really know what to like how to make sense of them. So, I think it's it is important to main, even though you need to maintain skepticism, because you don't just want to have like some random garbage like pumped into your brain by like a bunch of like a bunch of nonsense, right? But at the same time, I think you can remain open-minded, right? That's sort of the guiding philosophy of "Are We the Crazy Ones?" as a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I guess it is. <laughs> try try to be charitable. Maybe they're seeing something that you're not. Retain a healthy skepticism. <laughs> Tune in next time for part two of our discussion of Food of the Gods. <laughs>